Well, how many of you love a good story? (laughs) I would say most of us love a good story. However, I have found the most stories, especially recent ones, aren't that good. That's why they keep repackaging and reselling the old ones. Um, It's why they keep remaking the same old movie. Truly good stories are typically very old. They've stood the test of time. And they communicate not only to our intellect, and they uh, challenge us in the heart, they connect our hearts to their characters, but the truly good ones, they connect with us to the depth of our soul. Good stories, they will make us laugh, and they will make us cry. They will comfort us, they will challenge us, but the one thing they will not let us do is remain unchanged. A truly good story will change a person. Um, Not long ago, I think I've told you this, in the last two years, I have purposely set aside time to read through um, John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath and East of Eden, because I failed to do it in high school. Because I was chasing Tria everywhere. So I decided I am purposely going to do this. And so for the last two years, I've been reading through um, both The Grapes of Wrath and uh, East of Eden. And as as soon as I put down East of Eden, I wanted to pick it up again. And I wanted to start rereading it again. Because I felt like I was better able to understand all this Steinbeck was saying. That he was communicating all the way through. From the very first page. And good stories will do that to you. The moment you put it down, you'll want to pick it back up again. Thoughtful storytellers provide thoughtful readers with a lens through which they can better see the whole overarching narrative. And once readers see it, they want to read the story again and again and again. Because now they know what the story is all about. Again, good stories will challenge us. And then they will change us. And you need to know, and you probably do, that Jesus was a master storyteller. He often taught by way of story. I don't know if you know this, but 33% of everything Jesus taught was by way of story. 33%. That's a ton. There used to be a guy when, uh, when Rick was teaching here, and anytime I would get up to teach, I would preach something. And Rick was usually in the, a lot of times in the epistles, so I would teach a narrative. And every time I would do that, the guy, the guy at TCF would send me an email and he would just blast me. He would say, you just like to tell stories. And after about the fourth email of this, I got a little tired of it. And so I shot him back an email and I said, yeah, you know what? Jesus taught 33% of everything we have uh, of Jesus' teaching was by way of stories. So sit down and be quiet. <laughs> Jesus taught a lot by stories. And the reason he did it... Two, two reasons. We're told in Mark chapter 4. The reason he did it is be, was to um, conceal the truth to those who have already rejected him. A parable, what it will do is it will have an earthy level to it, which a person will understand, even if they've long rejected Jesus. It will conceal truth from them. But for those who have accepted Jesus and want more of him, it will reveal the truth to them. And when Jesus, what he does with his parables is once they drive home their message, they force you to make choices. It forces you to make choices. It will either further attract you to the words and the ways of Jesus, or it will further repel you 
away from Jesus. And that's the purpose of the parables. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, you can go ahead and turn there. Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, he knows who's in the crowds. And so he starts to speak in parables so that those who are rejecting him, the truth will be concealed from him. And to those who have accepted him and are actively one of his disciples who have accepted his truth, he will reveal more and more of his truth through the parable. And so for the next couple of weeks, next three weeks, we're going to be looking at three of Jesus' most shocking parables. Um, So Luke chapter 10. This week I have been asked more than any other week, well, what are we doing now that we've finished Genesis? We finished Genesis last week, as you know, and all week long I've been getting asked, what are we doing next? Here's what we're going to do. Uh, For the next three weeks, as I just mentioned, we're going to look at three of Jesus' most shocking parables. They will challenge us in all sorts of ways and hopefully change us. And then in the month of August, uh, we will look at the servant songs out of Isaiah. Uh, Five weeks in the servant songs up through uh, Labor Day. And uh, that will start August 6th. And we'll have a guest preacher on August 6th um, who will start the servant songs. And then after Labor Day, we're going to pick up into 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians, okay? So that's what we're going to be doing. So Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And uh, here's what you need to know. In the first, uh, first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel is all about who is Jesus. Chapters 1 through 9, who is Jesus? Chapters 9 through 18 essentially is what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus? And Jesus starts talking a lot through parables to his disciples about what it means to look like to be one of Jesus' disciples. And, and so uh, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, he tells one of the most well-known parables, the Good Samaritans. And while it is one of the most well-known parables, it's also one of the most challenging parables. Incredibly challenging. And we balk at it, at least I do, I balk at it in all sorts of different ways. And so I want to spend some time this morning to look at it. So beginning in verse um, 25, Jesus is talking. He's making his way towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. And he has large crowds of followers at this point of his ministry. Everybody's excited about Jesus. Well, everybody outside of the religious establishment. The religious establishment is not excited about Jesus, but the irreligious people are very excited about Jesus, and they're following him immensely. And so behold, verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this expert in biblical law stood up to challenge Jesus. And Luke adds that this man wanted to test Jesus. He wanted to try and trap Jesus in his own words, to get Jesus to say something, to get Jesus to do something that they could use against him, that they could eventually use against him. And this lawyer probably looked at Jesus' life, and he probably saw how many irreligious people hung around with Jesus, people who did not diligently obey the law in every facet of their lives the same way that the scribes and the Pharisees did, And they looked at his friends, and they looked at his message. Jesus' message that said, enter into the kingdom of God right now. You can enter into the kingdom of God right now by trusting me. 
And that message was so contrary. It was so radical to Judaism's message, which said you can enter into the kingdom of God at the end of the age if you've obeyed the law of God. If you've obeyed it completely, at the end of the age, you can enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus came on the scene and he said, no, 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 no. You can enter into the kingdom of God right now by trusting me. And you could see why the scribes and the Pharisees, this infuriated the the scribes and the Pharisees. And so when he comes on the scene, he starts associating with tax collectors and with prostitutes and with other people on the margins of society. And he starts telling these people they're forgiven. They're forgiven simply by trusting in Jesus Christ, simply by virtue of trusting him and that they're a part of God's kingdom right now. Well, again, you can see how that would infuriate the religious establishment, the scribes and the Pharisees. So this biblical law expert, he sees Jesus and he thinks, here's this false teacher who shows no respect for the necessity of keeping the law of God. And so he thinks, I'm going to trap him. I'm going to trap him with a question only to find out that he's going to be entrapped by Jesus. Look at what happens here. So he asks Jesus this question, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? What do I got to do to be a part of God's kingdom? Um, He wants to make sure that he he earns his share in the resurrection at the end of the age. And so he asks Jesus, what do I got to do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. And he probably thinks that Jesus is going to say something like, just believe in me. Just just believe in me or some other type of statement that will show that Jesus really isn't all that, that, he's not all that concerned with full obedience to God's law. And this is where the one who thinks he's going to trap Jesus is going to get trapped. Because Jesus turns around, turns the tables on him and he asks him a question. Look at verse 26. Jesus said, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He says, you're the biblical law expert. What does the law say? How do you read it? Now, there's two ways to answer that question, right? You could sit there for the next week and you could recite the entire body of Mosaic regulations. Or the other way is, you could simply summarize it. And this is what this guy tries to do. He, he summarizes what the, law, what the entire body of Mosaic regulation does. This is what the lawyer does. Look at verse 27. He says, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. When you take the entire Mosaic law and you distill it down to its essence, it comes out into two master commandments, which is a combination of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That is, every bit of who we are should respond to God with love and loyalty every moment of every day for as long as we should live. Secondly, now that's just the first one. Secondly, in combination with loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, we should love our neighbor as ourself. So our total devotion to the Lord is to be expressed in total devotion to people. They go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. 
Total devotion to God and total devotion to people. Every moment of every second, every second of every moment of every day of our life, this is how we're supposed to live. So the, the law expert summarizes the law's demands. And Jesus says, verse 28, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. <laughs> Just do this. Jesus says, you're right. You're big on obedience. Just obey those two commands fully. Every second of every day of your life and you will inherit eternal life. Jesus says, you want to do something to inherit eternal life? Fine. Great. That's wonderful. I'm glad you do. Just continually love the Lord your God with everything you've got. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor with the totality of all that you are every moment of every day. Let me ask you, have you ever done that? We don't even do that with our spouses. I mean, seriously, do we? We don't even love our spouse every second of every day. We don't even love our kids every second of every day. Jesus says, You're, this is what the law demands. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got and your neighbor as yourself. Nobody does this. And that's Jesus' point to the lawyer. That's his exact point. One of the problems with the idea that you can earn God's salvation by your good works and your moral effort is that it's an incredibly hard standard to live up to. You simply can't do it. And yet, the scribes and the Pharisees, they tried to do it. They tried to live up to the legal demands of God's law. Jesus, on another occasion, when he was speaking with the scribes and the Pharisees, he said to them, he says, you even tithe mint, dill, and cumin. Meaning that they were careful, they were so careful with the legal details that they tithed 10% of their cooking herbs. And by devoting themselves in this way, they, they sought to comfort themselves by keeping themselves acceptable to God. And when Jesus says, now think about what he says. When Jesus says, do this and you'll live, he has completely trapped them. Because what Jesus is saying is, have you seen the kind of life that God really wants from you? Have you really considered the kind of life that God wants from you? Do you love God with every fiber of your being, every second of every single day? Do you meet the needs of your neighbors with all the joy, energy, and happiness with which you meet your own needs? You ever notice when you meet your own needs, you meet them really quickly? And you meet them fully, and it makes you really happy. Do you ever, do you meet the needs of your neighbors with that same type of energy? With all the joy and with all the happiness, with the, all the energy you can muster? Jesus is saying, this is the kind of life you owe God and your fellow human being. God created you and he sustains you every, every, every moment by his strength, and therefore it's only fair. It's only fair that you should be completely devoted to him. That you should give him everything. And if you can give God a, a life like that, then you'll inherit, you'll, you'll earn eternal life. That's impossible, you're thinking. And again, that's Jesus' point. He's showing the man. Now listen, look at what he's doing here. He's showing the man the perfect righteousness that the law demands so that the guy would see he's not able to fulfill it. 
Jesus wants him to see, here's what the law demands. Here's where you're at. There's a big old chasm right there. You're not fulfilling the law's demands. In other words, Jesus is seeking to convict the man of his sin by using against him the very law he knew so well. Is this making sense? Okay, he's, he's seeking to convict the man uh, of his sin by using against him the law that he knew so well. Jesus says, essentially he's saying, I do take the law seriously. This guy thinks Jesus doesn't take the law seriously. And he's essentially saying, I do take the law seriously. More seriously than you do. And if you can do what it commands, you'll live. So Jesus was actually seeking to humble the man. Ask yourself, why? Was he trying to humiliate the man because this guy had the audacity to test Jesus in public? Was Jesus trying to trying to knock him down a peg or two in order to prop himself up? No, it wasn't any of those two things. Well, then why? The reason is, the reason Jesus is trying to humble this man is it's because it's only, it's only if we truly see the love that God requires in the law that we're not able to fulfill. It's only when a person truly see, truly sees the love that God requires in his law that we're not able to fulfill that we'll be willing and able to receive the love of God through the free grace of Christ Jesus. See, that if you don't understand, see, if you don't understand, here's the love that God requires of you, but you're not able to fulfill it. It's not until you recognize, I'm not able to live up to the law's co- commands. And, and Until you realize that, I'm not able to live up to that. But God offers free grace through Christ Jesus who has lived up to it. Then and only then will you say, I really want this grace. I, w- I really will trust Christ for his grace. And Jesus, what he's doing by doing this is he's, br- he's trying to bring the law expert to the point where he will see his need of God's grace. But he's not, Jesus hasn't brought him far enough yet. Because this man has built his entire life upon the religious system. And so Jesus hasn't brought him far enough yet. Because look at verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? After hearing Jesus' initial response, he thinks his self-justification plan is still in good tact. He thinks he can still pull this off. And he actually sees a loophole to lower the law's demands. Everybody's always looking for a loophole, right? Either with the IRS or with the Lord. We're always looking for a loophole. And so this guy says, well, if the law's demand is I just have to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love my neighbor as myself, then the question becomes, well, what's the loophole? Who really is my neighbor? Because if I can scale this down, I could potentially do this. So who's who actually is my neighbor? He knows he has to love his neighbor, so he says, well, who is that? What, is, what does loving my neighbor really mean? And who does that really mean? Is it just my family and my fellow Jews? Because if it's just my family and my fellow Jews, I might be able to do that. He's trying to scale down the command in order to make it more achievable. In order to keep his works righteousness plan intact. And in his mind, he's thinking, if Jesus just gives me a list, I can do this. 
if, if Jesus just gives me a list of, of what loving my neighbor looks like, I can do it. And, and who my neighbor actually is, I can do it. I can love my, my fellow Republicans. Even the crazy ones. There's a lot of crazy ones. I can love my fellow Democrats. Even the crazy ones. There's a lot of crazy ones. I can love my fellow countrymen. And I, I can do this. I can earn my own righteousness. Well, in response to this lawyer's question, Jesus tells a parable about what loving your neighbor really means and who exactly your neighbor really is. And the parable has been come to be known as the Good Samaritan. And it's a wonderfully challenging parable that has real teeth to it. So let's have a look. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, he's answering the lawyer's question, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the road from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, this was a 15-mile stretch of road that was known for its danger. It was so dangerous that it, it, became to, it came to be known as the Bloody Way. Because thieves, they would take advantage. It was a 4,000-foot drop in elevation, and it was lined by caves. And so thieves took advantage of that. And as people would travel the road, they would jump out from the caves, and uh, they would beat people, rob them, and leave them for dead. And they would escape with ease. It's kind of like the cultural equivalent of driving through the whatever the worst city in America is for gun violence right now. And it's kind of like driving through that at midnight in a convertible with your babies in the back seat. Um, so this Jewish man, in this parable, this Jewish man gets jumped by a band of thieves. Where the second part of verse 30, Jesus says, um, they stripped him, they beat him, and they departed, leaving him half dead. So they stripped him of all his clothes, leaving him half dead. So this man's been completely victimized and left, beaten and left for dead. So he's unconscious and stripped. And in the Middle East, with the various ethnic religious communities, the way you could identify people was by their accent and by their clothing. But this man has lost the ability of both of those things because he's half dead, he's unconscious, and he's been stripped. So you can't tell where he's from. You can't tell who he is. He's been completely victimized. At first glance, you couldn't tell what ethnic or religious community he belonged to. All you could tell was that he, he was a man in need of help. Well, who would help him? Verse 31. Now, by chance, by chance, Jesus says, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So a priest comes along, and uh, of course, you know this, a priest represents the height of religiosity. So um, picture the most pious religious person, respectable person you know. And he's probably riding along on some mount because priests were, again, among the upper classes. And no Middle Eastern person of any status walks along these type of roads. And so he's riding along some, riding along some sort of animal. And he's probably just leaving the temple. He's coming down from the temple where he had just served for two weeks to return back home. He sees the half-dead man on the road. And then he makes the decision to steer his mount to the far side of the road, and he continues on his way. Now, why did he do that? Everybody wants to know. Well, probably, first of all, because he's smart. Um, if the guy's half dead, 
that means the thieves are probably in the local vicinity still. And he probably is thinking, this is going to be extremely dangerous if I stop. If I stop in this region that's infested with thieves. Or maybe because, maybe because, um, to touch a man who was bleeding would be to defile a priest. And it would be costly and time-consuming to come back under ritual purity. Not only is it costly and time-consuming, but for a priest, it's also humiliating. It's completely humiliating. Um, remember, this was a man who was probably returning from his two weeks in the temple. And if a man were to be um, come under defilement, he would have to return to the temple. Where the priests, this is in an old commentary, the priests who would then make him stand at the eastern gates with all the other commoners who were unclean. And they did this simply to humiliate the priests who would become defiled. Whatever the reason, this pious priest, he sees the man, and instead of helping him, he moves to the other side of the road. He goes the other way. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came down to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So the Levite comes next. And the Levite says, you probably know they assisted the priests in temple responsibilities. So he comes down the road, he sees a man in dire need of help, and he too passes by. Now these are two people who should have helped. Should have absolutely helped. They should have stopped to give aid because this the Jew who was in the road, he was their brother in the faith. He was their countryman, their brother in the faith. And as Jesus tells the story, the next person he says comes down the road is a Samaritan. And you need to know that the Jews and the Samaritans were the most bitterest of enemies. The Jews considered the Samaritans uh, religious heretics and racial half-breeds. And they would only utter the, word, utter the word Samaritan as a curse. And in fact, daily in, the, in synagogues, um, in Jewish synagogues, petitions were offered up to God, praying that the Samaritans would not be partakers in eternal life. And Josephus tells us that as Jews from Galilee traveled to Jerusalem, uh, sometimes they would go through Samaria, and when they did, the Samaritans killed a great many of the Jews by cru- crucifixion and beheading. So now picture, there was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. They hated one another. And is, let me ask you this, is there a people group that you may despise? I want you to tap into that, whatever it was. I was thinking about it this morning. Remember how you felt about Al-Qaeda? Or maybe still feel about Al-Qaeda? Especially after uh, 9-11? That feeling? How, and how they felt against about Americans? That feeling, that animosity, is how, what the Jews and the Samaritans felt about one another. There's no love lost between these two groups. So when Jesus introduces the third person, the third man in the story as a Samaritan, all the animosity... And all the rage that was associated with that term came flooded into his Jewish audience's mind. And yet, look at what Jesus says this Samaritan man did for this Jewish man. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, and again, in their minds, they're thinking, oh, the stinking Samaritans. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion. Hmm. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. A denarii was a day's worth of wages. And, and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So when the Samaritan sees the Jewish man in the, in the road, he's moved with compassion. He braves the danger because if anybody was going to get jumped on that road, it would have been a Samaritan. So he braves the danger by stopping, giving him emergency medical aid, by bandaging, bandaging up his wounds, by uh, soothing the wound, by pouring oil on it, and then disinfecting it by pouring, the, uh, pouring the, the wine on the wound. And then he transfers the man to an inn where he stayed with him for an evening, spent his own time doing it, and then the morning he paid the innkeeper and he charged him to care for the man until he came back. There's, now think about what this man does. He pours out his riches on behalf of this man. He pours out his riches on behalf of this Jewish man. Uh, clothes, wine, oil, transportation, money, the sacrifice of time. He pours out all that he has on behalf of this half-dead half man. Now ask this question. Why is Jesus telling this story? I mean, it's a great story. It's a great story, but why is he telling it? Well, remember... Uh, he's taking something that's abstract and he's putting some flesh on it. He's taking a concept that's abstract and making it concrete. And by doing so, he's radically answering the lawyer's questions. Remember the questions that the lawyer asked Jesus. He basically asked Jesus, what does loving my neighbor really mean? And who does that really mean? What does it really mean to love my neighbor? And who does that actually really mean? And Jesus answers the question, what does loving my neighbor really mean? By telling a story where a man meets the material, physical, and economic needs of another. That's a radical story. Caring for others materially and economically is it, 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 it's not an option. Caring for their needs, um, for others' material and economic needs, is not an option option for Jesus. This isn't something you can opt into or opt out of. It's not an option. He flat out refuses the lawyer's attempt to limit the implications of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Boy, it's getting quiet in here. I have noticed. He refuses to limit the implications of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, by telling the story, Jesus is saying, to love your neighbor means to be sacrificially involved with the vulnerable. Just as the Samaritan was with this man who he had no prior relationship to. So Jesus, he refuses to let us limit how we love, but also he refuses to let us limit who we love. The question of who is my neighbor is a great question. Because we tend... To think of our neighbors, um, we tend to think of our neighbors as people of the same socioeconomic class as us. And we instinct, now think about this, tell me if this is not true. We tend to think of our neighbors as people of the same socioeconomic class as us, and we instinctively, we do it instinctively, we instinctively tend to limit ourselves for who we will exert ourselves for. Is that not true? We instinctively tend to limit ourselves 
for who we will exert ourselves for. We will do it for people like us and for people whom we like, who share our values and who share our ideals and who will vote like us. But again, note this, Jesus will have none of that. By showing a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more radical way to say anyone at all, anyone at need at all, regardless of their race, regardless of their politics, regardless of their class, regardless of their religion, is your neighbor. Not everybody is your brother or sister in your faith, but everyone, absolutely everybody is your neighbor. And you must love, and by love, he means being sacrificially involved and engaged in their life. Now, one of the reasons, um, how much time we got? Oh, gosh. One of the reasons we bristle at this, one of the main objections Christians have about this is that they will look out at the world and people who are, are, are in hard situations and they'll say, well, they don't have upright moral character. And they've put themselves in this position by making bad choices. That's one of the objections, yeah? This is the participation part. This is one of our main objections. We say, well, they don't have really upright moral character. They put themselves in this position. We'll do it for people. We'll freely give to people whose house burns down. We'll say, yeah, but they, that, that wasn't a choice since something just happened. But people who constantly make choices, we don't want to help them. That's one of the objections. And that may be true, right? That's a valid objection. But honestly, you've got to think about it. When Christ came to you, did you have upright and moral character? When the gospel came to you, did you have upright and moral character? Did humanity have upright and moral character when Jesus Christ entered into it? No. And yet he came, and yet he disadvantaged himself. He disadvantaged himself completely in able to advantage people who were consistently making choices that went against the ways of Christ. And we're called to love others as Christ has loved us. Christ loved us and was compassionate with us even though we were spiritually bankrupt due to our own sin. It wasn't by happenstance. It wasn't just an accident. These were choices we were consciously making. And yet he came to us and he gave us what we needed. Even though we were completely undeserving. And therefore, as Christians called, clothed by his grace, given his spirit, we're called to go and do likewise. We're called to go and help those who are very undeserving. Now, obviously, we don't want to create dependency. I get that. But that doesn't excuse us from really helping materially, physically, and economically in the needs of others. And one of the main lessons of the Good Samaritan is that love entails sacrifice. You see, the Good Samaritan, it isn't just a cute bedtime story we tell our kiddos. It challenges us in all sorts of ways. It challenges me in all sorts of ways. It actually has real teeth to it. It challenges us in ways we wish we didn't. Because Jesus says, no, love, real love, entails sacrifice. Real love entails disadvantaging yourself to advantage another. And boy, that's hard, isn't it? To disadvantage yourself, to bear one another's burdens, as Galatians calls us to do, that's hard. But this is the call of discipleship to Christ. Now, back to the story. Jesus, he asks a counter question. Look at verse 36. He tells the story, and then he asks this counter question. Which of these three do you think, which of these three, 
the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell amongst the robbers? Jesus' point in, uh, in asking this question is to show that compassion and response to a, makes a neighbor. Compassion, response, and love makes a neighbor, not locale, not race or religion. You can't so narrowly define it as to limit yourself, uh, limit your responsibility to others. So he says, who do you think, the, who, who actually was the neighbor? In verse 37, the, the biblical law expert says, the one who showed him mercy. Notice he can't even say the word Samaritan. And yet he has to acknowledge that it was the Samaritan who extended mercy to others. And Jesus said to him, you're right. You go and do likewise. <laughs> Look at what Jesus tells this Jewish man. He says, you're absolutely right. Now you need to go and emulate the Samaritan man. His love for God should be expressed through meeting the needs of others, through sacrificial deeds. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Luke ends the story there, and we'll do the same. Here's what I want to do. This parable was opened by asking a question. So let me close by asking two questions. Let me close by asking two questions. Here's the first question. Ask yourself Ask yourself this question, not who is my neighbor. Not who is my neighbor, but who do, you, who do I know that I should be a neighbor to? Not who's my neighbor, because we're to know through the scriptures that uh, our neighbor is anybody at all in need. So it's not that question. So the question is, who do I know that I should be a neighbor to? That's the question you have to ask yourself. We have to ask ourselves that individually. And we have to ask that collectively as a church. Who do I know in my circle of influence that's in need and that I can, in the name of Christ, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, reach out to with the Father's love and get involved with? That's the question you have to ask yourself. And more than that, you have to put some skin in the game. Um, TCF, I'll tell you a couple ways we do it. We have a benevolent ministry. A portion of all of your offerings goes into a benevolent ministry. That when people are in a real hard situation, we're able to help them. We support Mercy's Gate. is a great ministry. If you want a, a great way to get skin in the game, uh, support, get involved with Mercy's Gate. They help people who are struggling financially to set up budgets. They teach them life skills, budgets, to help them put uh, make a game plan for actually getting out of debt and out of des- destitute, being out of uh Coming out of destitution. It's a great ministry. Dan and Janie Buck are involved in it. If you want to learn more about it, contact them. Um, consider the communities in which you live. The Upper Rogue, I don't know if you know this, we have three communities in the Upper Rogue where 33% of their populations are at or below the poverty line, which is 65% higher than the national average. That's true of Prospect, that's true of Butte Falls, and that's true of Trail. 33% of the homes are at or below the poverty line, which, again, 65% higher than the national average. And we, we live right around it all. So the question is not who is my neighbor. The question is who do I know that I could be a neighbor to? Um, don't worry about their race. Don't worry about their religion. Don't worry about their background. Don't worry about their personality, their politics. Through this parable, Jesus is saying to be sacrificially involved in their life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian and pastor, he once said the goal of the Christian life is not to avoid sin, but rather to courageously do the will of God. 
And that's excellent. The goal of the Christian life is not to avoid sin, but it's to courageously do the will of God. And when we cross, and when Christians do this, I mean, I know you guys do this, but we're called to do more of it. When we cross all political, racial, and social boundaries to meet the needs of others, to cause others to flourish, you're actively doing the will of God. And Christ says, this is what does discipleship to me look like? Remember, uh, 9 through 18 in Luke's Gospels, what does discipleship to Christ looks like? look like? This is what it looks like. It's to be sacrificially involved in the lives of others. So that's the first question. Not who is my neighbor, but who do I know that I can be a neighbor to? Here's the second question. Remember the setting here. Remember the setting. Jesus is telling this parable to a Jewish law expert and presumably some other Jewish men in the audience. And what he does by telling the parable the way he does is absolutely brilliant. So ask yourself this. What if Jesus had flipped the script? What if he had flipped the script and reversed the roles and said it was a Samaritan who was beaten up and left for dead in the road? And a Jewish man came along, saw him and had compassion upon him and poured out his wealth on behalf of the Samaritan. How would the Jewish law expert and those in the audience, how would they have responded to that, that story? You know what they would have done? They would have looked at Jesus and they would have scoffed. They would have looked at him and said, that's a ridiculous story. We, no self-respecting Jew even walks through Samaria. We're not going to stop and actually help a Samaritan. You make outrageous demands on people, Jesus. But what Jesus brilliantly does, this is so brilliant. What he brilliantly does is he puts a Jewish man in the road as the victim. And by doing so, he causes each listener to imagine themselves as the victim. They, They automatically imagine themselves as the victim that's left for dead and without hope if this Samaritan doesn't stop. And if you were a Jewish person, in spite of your prejudice and in spite of your hate towards the Samaritans, wouldn't you want the Samaritan to stop and to act on your behalf if that was your situation? Wouldn't you want the Samaritan, after the the religious people passed you by, wouldn't you want the Samaritan to stop and to act on your behalf if this was your, your situation? Wouldn't you want him to be a neighbor to you? To cross all racial, national, and religious barriers to assist you? Of course you would. You would be begging for him to help you. And by telling the parable in this way, Jesus is saying, what if your only hope, what if your only hope was to receive compassion from someone who didn't, who didn't owe you anything? Didn't owe you anything, but actually owed you the opposite of help. Actually owed you um, rejection. What if your only hope was to receive free grace from someone who had every reason, based upon your relationship with you, your relationship to you, not only to walk by you, but to trample upon you? What if that was your only hope? And so Jesus, after making his point, ends the story by asking the man, well, who was the neighbor to the man on the road? And the Jewish law expert had to admit that it was the one who showed mercy. He had to admit that if he was the man who was dying and without hope, and he had been offered love and service from someone who he should have expected rejection from, that he would have accepted his offer of neighbor love gratefully. And if you were, now put yourself in this situation, if you were put in that situation... Wouldn't 
You Wouldn't you accept neighbor love from someone who you didn't expect to receive it from? If you were dying and without hope, wouldn't you want anybody to cross all bounds to come to you and to reach out to you and to mend you and to save you? Wouldn't, wouldn't you take anybody to do that for you? You see, and according to the Bible, you and I are just like that man dying in the road. We're just like that man dying in the road without hope. Spiritually, the Bible tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So we're actually worse off than this man who was half dead in the road. The Bible tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But when Jesus entered in human history, he came into our neighborhood, so to speak, and he came down our road. And though we had been his enemies, he was moved with compassion by our situation. And he came to us and he saved us, not just at, not merely at the risk of his life, as in the case of the Samaritan, but at the cost of his life. On the cross... He paid a debt we could have never paid ourselves. You see, Jesus, he is the great Samaritan that the good Samaritan points to. He is the great Samaritan. He sees us in our plight. And religion just walks on by. Because religion can't save you. You can't live up to the law's demands. You need someone who will come to you, will cross all bounds, all boundaries, and reach out to you in love. And say, I will completely save you. And this is what Jesus says. And only, and when and if and only you receive his free grace, then and only then are you able, only when you receive his free grace, are you then able to be the type of neighbor that the Bible calls you to be and to be the type of person that the world desperately needs you to be. Someone who's saying, because Christ has reached out to me and has loved me at extreme cost to himself, I'm then willing to lay aside my resources and love others in the same degree. Amen? Let me pray. Why don't you stand and we'll sing and then we'll eat. Heavenly Father, this is a terribly challenging passage. It really is. It challenges us in all sorts of ways, Father. And we pray that as we meditate upon it, as we think through all of the implications, and there's a host of implications we simply didn't have time to get to this morning, Lord. We pray that your spirit given to us because you left heaven and came to earth because you were moved with compassion and you rescued us at the ultimate cost to yourself. We pray that that reality and your spirit inside of us would infuse us to love and to live with grace and generosity towards all those that we come across. We want to do it wisely, of course, Lord. But we do want to be involved in the game. We want to step up and step in and serve the people that you've called us to serve. And Lord, there is ample opportunity all around us. You have put us in communities um, where there is great need. And so we pray as the body of Christ, individually and collectively, that we would uh, seek to serve in the power and the wisdom of Jesus Christ. We trust you for these things. In Jesus' name. Amen.